And we're studying the life of Jesus in the scriptures so that we can understand who he really was. We've talked about the fact that culture loves to hijack Jesus. They love to hijack his message. They love to hijack his teachings and turn it into something that is more palatable. And so our desire in studying Jesus in the scriptures is to find out who he really was, what he really said, what he really taught so that we can be accurate disciples and followers of Christ. Last week we talked about the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is God, and this idea that Jesus being God is the dividing line between all that is Christian and all that is not. And this week we're going to dive into the stories of Elizabeth and Mary. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5 starts out by saying, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And this was a dark, dark time for the nation of Israel. When we tune into our story, there's been about 400 years that have passed between the last time God spoke or gave any manifestation of his presence to anybody. So think about that. Pretty pretty much everybody who ever saw God do something directly or heard God say something directly is dead and has been dead for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. Everything they know about God is passed down from stories, through the Torah, through scrolls, but that nobody's experienced God for 400 years. It's just been silence. What essentially happens between Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, is God basically says, you you guys have turned away from me so many times, so many times. If you don't want to follow me, then don't follow me. And he gave prophecies that said he was never going to give up on his people. He had a plan. He was going to send a Messiah. But it's been 400 years since anybody heard God spoke. That's a dark time. And our story continues, his wife was one of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. And so here's the idea. If you trace their their family tree, both Zacharias and Elizabeth come from priestly family lines. So their whole family life is all about serving God. It's in the DNA of their family. But she's barren. And at this time, there's a social stigma associated with barrenness. It's assumed that God does not approve of you if you're barren. So you're facing this double hardship of the sorrow of being barren and then the social stigma of people saying, well, if you're barren, it must be because God doesn't approve of you. And so there's this righteous, holy woman, Elizabeth, And she carries this stigma. She carries this heartache with her everywhere she goes. And so God works across time and arranges things so that he's named Zacharias, which means Yahweh remembers. And she's named Elizabeth, which means oath of God or promise of God. 
So you've got them together, and the idea of their two names is that God remembers his promises. God remembers his promises, and that's their name. It's, their name doesn't mean barren. It doesn't mean forsaken. Together, the idea is God remembers his promises. And the temple priesthood was divided into 24 divisions, and Abijah was one of the 24 divisions. It was the eighth division, and each of those divisions would serve for two weeks out of the year at different times. So when we jump into our story, Zacharias is in one of his stints serving in the temple for one of those two weeks. Verse 8, it says, So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. And so the idea is he's going to get to go closer to the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God was localized. He's going to get to go closer than anybody else in his division during this time of service. He's going to have the highest duty, the highest role of burning the incense as geographically close to the Holy of Holies as anyone is going to get that week. And it says this, verse 11, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. And this is an insight into the glory of God. And here's why I say this. Because this is how somebody reacts to witnessing an angel who's not disguised as a human being. This is how somebody reacts to an angel in their glorified state. And angels are always a popular idea. There's tons of books on angels written by people that don't believe in Jesus. And so we have all these books and, and these figures of angels, like they show up and, and, and we go, oh, I saw this angel and I got a, I got a warm, fuzzy feeling. And I just, it was just, I just felt love, you know. And here we have this account. An angel appears and he's thinking, I'm dead. I'm dead. He's filled with fear. And so now put this in perspective. An angel, a created being created by God terrifying enough that somebody thinks this can't be good there's just such a contrast between the glory of the angel and themselves it's it's that feeling of feeling completely vulnerable and inadequate and then now imagine the glory of god now imagine the glory of jesus in his glorified state that's an angel they go and do the bidding of god they were created by god so now imagine god and you kind of get the idea why God says, you can't even look at me. You, you can't even look at me. You'll just vaporize. You'll disintegrate. You can't handle me in this body, in my true glorified state. So he sees an angel, and he's terrified. And this is your first fill-in. The glory of God is terrifyingly awesome. The glory of God is terrifyingly awesome. Terrifyingly awesome. Trust me, you would be scared too if you saw an angel. You wouldn't be like, awesome, this is going to be awesome on Facebook. You're not going to do that. You're going to be terrified if you see an angel. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And that's good news and and of course, the name John means God is gracious. God is gracious. 
And now the angel starts talking about the destiny of John. And he says in verse 15, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit in utero. You think you've met spiritual people. John's able to make the claim, listen, I wasn't just filled with the Spirit before you were born. I was filled with the Spirit before I was born. He's one of the only people in history who can make this claim. He set aside, God makes a special exemption for John and says, you're going to be full of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be full of the Holy Spirit before you're even born in your mother's womb. I don't know if that translated into like no morning sickness or I don't know what that looked like for her pregnancy, but he's full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him, he's talking about Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Many kings throughout history would have employees or slaves whose role was to be a herald. And anytime the king was going out of his palace, the heralds would would ride before the king or run in front of the king and would basically yell, the king is coming, the king is coming. And the idea is if you were a wise person who feared the king out of wisdom, you would get ready for the king coming. You might grab some flowers that you could throw in his path. You might grab your kids and stand there ready to clap or chant his name as he came by. If you had something in the way, you were going to move it out. If you had anything that might offend the king, you would get it out of the way because the king was coming. And this is what Gabriel is telling Elizabeth. He's saying, your son John is going to be a herald. John is going to be a herald. The Father chose John to proclaim the message that Jesus was coming. The King is coming, so you better get ready. You better get ready. Here's what I find interesting. He's not saying, the King is coming, get ready for hugs. That's not what John is yelling. He's given the spirit and power of Elijah. Probably the most famous and powerful prophet in all of Scripture. If you study Elijah's life, the guy does ridiculous things on a routine basis. It's crazy what Elijah does. Crazy what Elijah does. And so John is going to have this spirit of Elijah. And Elijah was famed for having an uncompromising stand for the truth of the Word of God, even when confronted with a hostile king. Elijah didn't care. He'd take on all the prophets of the false gods. He says, let's do this. My God's the only true God. He had no fear in him. He had this awareness God was with him. And he was bold about preaching in a hostile environment the truth that people needed to repent. And so he's given the mission, John is, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And this is the anointing he's given. He's giving an anointing to preach repentance. Repentance. He says, the king is coming, so turn from your wickedness, stop rejecting God, and get ready because he's coming. He's coming. This is so important because culturally sometimes we love to hijack Jesus and say, listen, 
Jesus came just to love on everybody. And on one hand, that's true. But the herald that Jesus chose for himself preached one thing, repentance, repentance. That's what Jesus chose as the message to go before him. What Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm coming and I am love, but in order for you to receive my love, there has to be repentance. We talked about that last week. Salvation is for those who receive him. The gift is given to everyone, but you have to receive it. So he chooses a man who's going to preach repentance. It even in scripture calls the baptisms that John did a baptism of repentance. It was a different baptism to the baptisms that followed the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It was a baptism to symbolize repentance. And that's the message Jesus chose to go before him. And at this point, the the fear of the angel is kind of gone. And Zacharias has figured out, okay, this is a happy angel interaction. Okay, this is good. I can relax a little bit. But put this on your outlines. Instead of thanking God for his promise, Zacharias gives voice to his doubt. Instead of thanking God for his promise, Zacharias gives voice to his doubt. Verse 18, and Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. Historically, this is pre-modern medicine, if you're tracking with me. So he's saying, Jesus, Jesus, um, this just isn't going to work. I think you know why. How is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? And isn't this so like us? We have an entire book in the Bible full of the promises of God that apply to our lives. And how often is our response, I just don't see how that could happen in my life. I mean, I, I get it happening in other people's lives. I mean, I see it, but there's just... I don't see how that could happen in my life, with my situation, with my circumstances, with my history. This can't possibly apply to me. Let me tell you about my situation. But the angel, fortunately for Zacharias, is a, is a very cool cat. And so he breaks it down for Zacharias, and he says, verse 19, the angel answered and said to him, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. Gabriel's keeping cool, but but this is the message that he's saying underneath this. He's saying, are you kidding me? Are Are you serious? How shall this be done to me? How about the fact I'm an angel... And we're having a conversation. How about that for a start? How about that for a reason? I'm Gabriel. Do you know where my regular hangout is? In the presence of God. That's a pretty good reason for you to believe me. I'm Gabriel. Come on. That's the subtext of what Gabriel is saying. He's a little more classy than me. He's like, just roll with it, Captain Obvious. And then, then, then Gabriel says, verse 20. I like this, verse 20. But behold, you will be mute. And you might want to underline this in your Bible. And not able to speak until the day these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, 
which will be fulfilled in their own time. You want a sign that I'm for real? You want a sign I'm for real? No more talking. How's that for a sign? You with me? We're on the same page now? That's what I thought. Gabriel is, is also saying something else in doing this. What he's saying is he's saying if all you can speak is doubt and fear, I'm going to have to shut you up. That's what Gabriel is telling him. Because you see, Gabriel knows God and he knows the heart of God. And years later in Scripture, Paul would write in Hebrews that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And the more you study Scripture, you find that faith is the key to everything. The people that God loves the most in Scripture are not the cleanest people. They are the people who believe God. They believe God. It says in Hebrews that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Just believing God. That's what God is looking for is people who will believe him. And so Gabriel's really doing Zacharias a favor. He's like, listen, God's going to work here, but I'm going to do you a favor. God's not a big fan of doubt, especially when he sent me to give you a little leg up on believing that this thing is going to happen. So I'm going to do you a favor, save you from speaking doubt. You're just not even going to be able to talk until you see this stuff happen. And then when you see it happen, you'll realize that it was true. God's word tells us that there's incredible, incredible power in the tongue. Incredible power. It says it's like a small spark that sets a whole forest on fire. It's like a small rudder that can direct an enormous ship. It charts and sets the course for our whole life. There is a correlation that even modern psychology agrees with between what we speak out about ourselves and what we believe. There's a relationship between those things. You can't constantly tell yourself, I'm ugly, I'm ugly, I'm ugly, and expect to believe that you're attractive. You can't constantly tell people how worthless you are, how worthless your life is, and expect to feel like you matter. And in the area of faith, you can't constantly speak doubt and expect to live a life full of faith. It just doesn't work that way. Zacharias is an example of a simple yet powerful truth. And the truth is this. Silence is better than speaking doubt. Silence is better than speaking doubt. Maybe your mama told you if you can't say nothing nice, don't say anything at all. For the believer, it's if you can't speak faith, don't say anything at all. You're not building anybody up. You're not building yourself up. Silence is better than speaking doubt. When God has the the Israelites march around Jericho, do you remember the story? They're marching around Jericho, and he gives them this really interesting instruction. He says, you can blow the trumpets at certain points when you march around during the first six days, but, but here's the thing. Not a word while you march. Not a word. I really believe God said that because he knew if they start walking, while the inhabitants of Jericho are up on the wall. And and you know, they're not inside the city trembling. The inhabitants of Jericho, like every day, are leaning over the wall, laughing, probably hucking loogies at the Israelites, throwing stuff at them, being like, really? This is your battle strategy? Power walking? Awesome. Good for you guys. Good for you guys. And so God knows. He says, listen, if I let you talk, 
probably the first day you're going to start saying things like, this is, ri- this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Like, w- really, is our walking going to cause like an earthquake and the whole city's going to fall down? This is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. I saw Joshua take a pretty good punch to the head in that last, but maybe it just doesn't seem logical. Yeah, you know, let's just go back to camp. So God just says, listen, shut up and just do what I say. Seriously, just don't talk. Just do what I say. And then when they're allowed to make noise, you know what they're allowed to do? The last day they march around, he says, you're allowed to shout on cue in victory, in celebration of the victory that I'm about to give you. That's what you can do. You want to make some noise? You can give a victory cry, and then I'll give you the victory. You can give a victory cry in faith. That's the noise you can make. They do it, and God does it. Because there's power in the tongue. And doubt removes the power of God from any situation because he's chosen to operate through the power of faith in our lives. And we need to get on board with him. It's as simple as this. Amos 3.3 says, Can two walk together unless they are in agreement? You want to see God move in your life? Get in agreement with God. Don't live your life so that God says one thing about you and you say something else about yourself. God says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but you walk around saying, I'm just not good enough. I'm not good at it. Don't walk in disagreement with God. Walk in agreement with God. Agree with his promises for your life. So let's keep reading. Verse 21. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. What's taking this guy so long? But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. His week of service was over. He goes back home. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And this is what's going on with Elizabeth. She could have walked out and said, Check out the baby. Who's blessed now? That's what's up. Could have done this, just walking around, shoving it in people's faces. Who's disapproved now? Oh, not me. That's what's up. But she retreats quietly away for five months. And she's not doing this because she's shy of her testimony. She's doing this because instead of boasting, she wants to retreat out of reverence for God and just be grateful with the Lord for those five months and just say every day, God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you've done. And just enjoy this fellowship with God. And say, really, God, this is about you and me. This isn't about you and me and everybody else. She's not most happy that people now view her differently. She's most happy that God has blessed her. And she's reveling in that. She doesn't care what anybody else thinks at this point. She's just thankful, full of gratitude. Elizabeth's testimony is the meaning of her name and her husband's names. God remembers. God keeps his promises. So over here on one side, God's shown up and made Zacharias and Elizabeth pregnant with a child who will grow into the man, John the Baptist, who will herald the coming of the Messiah. Around six months later, something else amazing happens as the angel Gabriel is sent on another assignment with another message to a different person. Verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So Galilee is is a region 
on the Sea of Galilee, a really, really sort of big lake that really is a sea. And it's just a simple, small, blue-collar working town that, that is known for, well, nothing. It's not really known for anything. They have no claim to fame. They don't have the biggest sign or like the biggest fishing net in Israel. They don't have anything. There's nothing exceptional about Nazareth. It's as plain as plain can be. Verse 27, Gabriel is sent, notice this, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, anytime scripture appears to be redundant, it always means that God is trying to draw our attention to that fact. And so you see for the first time here in verse 27, we're going to talk about this more next week, but Luke places a specific emphasis on the fact that Mary was a virgin. It's going to be very important to what we're going to talk about next week. And in those days, most marriages were prearranged. They're prearranged between families. This seems like a really oppressive idea when you're young and in love. When you get older, it makes a whole lot of sense. I just got to tell you. And you look back now and you realize, oh, you're 16 and in love? I'm sure you're mature enough to make this important decision about the rest of your life. I'm sure you've weighed all the factors. I'm sure you're not just thinking, you're hot. (laughs) So there's something to this that that makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, you know, when I look back at, at, at my wife and I getting married, and we love each other, we have a great marriage, but we look back when we're 20 and we laugh, we're like, we had no idea what we were doing. We had no clue what we're doing. It's a demonstration of the grace of God. All I can tell people is, listen, she loved Jesus, I love Jesus, and so God didn't let us ruin our lives. That's like the testimony. That's what I tell people. I believe in getting married young, but I say, make sure you're loving Jesus, because then he'll take care of it. He'll work it out. We had no clue what we're doing. I don't know if you can tell from this little uh, bunny trail here, but I have a daughter who's eight. And so this, this concept really, really appeals to me. There's something to it. Um, we're going to talk more next week about Mary. But, but Mary was betrothed to marry Joseph in an arranged marriage. And Joseph is from the family line of David. Two weeks we talked about how that's a royal line. It's the line of the king that was important prophetically for who Jesus had to be. And in verse 28 it says, And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, underline these two words, Highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. You might want to underline that word, among, among women. And I love this because Gabriel says, rejoice. And the reason that he gives her, first of all, to rejoice is not, you're going to give birth to God. It's not the first thing he says. Notice what he says. He says, rejoice. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. There is nothing greater that we have to celebrate as believers than the truth that God is with us. The Lord is with you. He could have stopped right there and that sentence would have been completely valid. The Lord is with you. The incredible thing for us is that because the Holy Spirit has been released on the earth, every single one of us can say for a fact, the Lord is with me. The Lord is with me. And so when we gather to worship, we should almost just start every worship time with just this reminder, hey, rejoice because the Lord is with you. What makes this truth so powerful is that the truth stands whether you've had the worst week in the world or you've had the best week in the world. 
that truth stands whether your life is falling apart or everything's finally coming together. The Lord is with you. When you really wrap your head around that, which you really can't, it is a mind-blowing truth, man. God is with me. He's with me. He's with me. What a statement. He says, that God, you know, the God that's wrapped in unapproachable light, the God whose presence resides in the Holy of Holies that will strike a person dead if they enter in any way that is less than perfect and ceremonially just right. The God who no one can look at, the God who made the heavens and the earth all powerful, almighty. The Lord is with you. He's with you. This wasn't a common promise. They didn't have this hanging on their wall, stitched and crocheted in a picture frame. The Lord is with me. Nobody would make this claim. Nobody would make this claim at that time. But the angel says, the Lord is with you. So rejoice. Rejoice. And then notice these very, very interesting statements. We're now reaching the politically incorrect portion of the sermon. Just a little alert for everybody. But notice these very interesting statements. Mary is referred to as highly favored one. That implies something, and here's what it implies. It implies that Mary is the recipient of divine grace. She's not the dispenser of divine grace. See the difference between those two? She's highly favored, so somebody else has favored her, is blessing her. She's received grace. She's not dispensing grace divine grace to other people. And in that same section, notice this. Gabriel tells Mary, blessed are you among women. Among women. Now, as early as the ministry of Jesus, people already began wanting to elevate Mary to a divine status. This literally happened. People were starting to do this while Jesus was ministering on the earth because most of the pagan religions were actually very feminine-centric. So the idea was the earth mother, the god of fertility, um, a lot of female goddesses. And so they were trying to elevate the mother of Jesus to God status because if Jesus is God, then his mother really must be a god too, which would be in line with Greek and Roman mythology at the time. But notice what this verse says. It says that Mary is blessed among women, but not above women. It says she's blessed among women, not above women. I don't want to get too, too deep into this, but later on in his ministry, a person, while Jesus was ministering, would cry out, blessed is the breast at which you nursed. So basically they're saying, your mom is, is, is blessed. You know, she's something amazing. And, and Jesus says this. He says, On the contrary, on the contrary, blessed is he who hears my word and does it. So Jesus, when somebody seeks to elevate his own mom to something higher than human, Jesus himself puts him in his place and says, on the contrary, blessed is he who hears my word and does it. That's straight from the mouth of Jesus. Verse 29, but when she saw him, when Mary saw Gabriel, Here we see this again. She was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. So Gabriel arrives and says, rejoice, rejoice, blah, 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 blah. And she's still thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. She she literally isn't even taking in. She's just terrified at this angel. She can't even process what he's saying. And then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. So this is sort of like a standard operating procedure for angels. Angel shows up, says an opening line. Second line is always, 
don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, just another name for the nation of Israel, forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? So Zacharias and Elizabeth, they're saying, this is impossible, we're old. All the machinery isn't functioning at a peak level. And Mary says, how can this possibly be? Because I don't know a lot, but there's usually a dude involved like in this process. How's this going to work? But notice as well, the angel doesn't punish Mary, and I think that indicates something. It, it indicates that Zacharias's response is rooted in doubt. Mary's response is rooted in wonder and amazement. She's just like, this is awesome, but like, like how? Like, how, how are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Nothing will be impossible. That's worth underlining. But I want us to notice this. Mary asks a question. She says, how, how, how could this possibly happen? Go back and look at Gabriel's answer. I need you to notice there is nothing intellectually satisfying about the answer that Gabriel gives Mary. Nothing. There's nothing intellectually satisfying about it. Read it again. This is his answer to her question. How is this going to happen? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, you'll give birth to the Son of God. That's the explanation. So I think, uh, I think Gabriel's anticipating Mary about to say, um, I didn't really answer my question. So he just goes on and, and, and he gives further explanation. But his explanation isn't like, well, this is going to happen. This is his explanation. He says, hey, you know your, your relative Elizabeth? Baron Elizabeth? Yes, yeah, she's six months pregnant right now. Right now. For the same reason that she is pregnant, you'll be pregnant. God's doing something. That's your explanation. For with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. And that is the model of how to respond to the word of the Lord in faith. God's okay with us saying, but how are you going to do this in my life? How are you going to do this in my life? He's okay with us asking. But he expects us to believe when he answers again and again in his word, because I'm God, how am I going to do it? I'm, I'm God. Like that is the answer. That's the explanation. That's the how. That's the why. That's all of it. Because I'm God. I want to. 
What I want to do happens because I'm God. It says this in verse 38, Then Mary said, this is worth underlining too, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And next week, we're, we're going to talk more about what, what Mary was facing. Because if you want an example of someone whose life was mountaintop experience, straight down into the valley, it's Mary. It's Mary. So she's having an angel. She's told you're going to give birth to the Son of God. The whole time in the back of her head, she's thinking, I don't know that anybody is going to buy this. I mean, it's not really the sort of thing you run out into the street and say, great news, I'm pregnant with God. You know? Um, I think even Mary understood there's not really any hugs or high fives coming. You know? She probably doesn't tell really anybody at that point because she's not stupid. She, she, she knows. She's like, no one's going to buy this. And it's a happy moment right now, but she can't share it with anybody. She also knows in the back of her mind she's betrothed to Joseph. And she's living in a time where getting pregnant out of wedlock was as adultery. And the punishment for that was stoning. So Joseph had a legal right to, to basically file a legal complaint and ask for her to be stoned to death. So she's carrying all this in the back of her mind. And she's confronted with an angel saying, rejoice, rejoice. God's blessing you. And what we find is that the blessings of God, can't wait to talk about this more in a couple of weeks. The, the blessings of God are often accompanied with great hardships great hardships and we're constantly faced with the choice do we want to be genuinely blessed do we want everything god has for us are we willing to pay the price to walk in everything that god has for us or do we just want the easy stuff the greatest blessings come with the greatest trials and the greatest price but they're worth it they're worth it whatever mary had to face i think she'd tell you it, it was worth it to hold the son of god in my arms Man, that was worth it. It was worth it all. But Mary has this attitude saying, listen, whatever you want to do in my life, do it. Consider me your maidservant. Do what you want to do in my life. That's her attitude. I'll take the blessings. I'll take whatever comes along with it. I want everything you have for me. She is such a model of faith and a model of a humble response to what God wants to do in my life. Here's what she doesn't do. She doesn't speak up and list all the reasons why she's unworthy to be the mother of God. She doesn't start listing all the reasons she's not qualified. She just says, okay, do what, do what you want to do. Do what you want to do. I'm on board. I'm with you. And not once does Mary say, you know what? I understand it all now. After that detailed explanation, I understand how this is all going to work. She, she, she doesn't understand how any of this is going to happen. But she decides she's going to walk in agreement with God. She's going to get in agreement with God. How can God heal my marriage? How can, how can God possibly find me the right husband? How can God possibly find me the right wife? How can I possibly have peace in this terrible work environment I'm in how, how can I possibly have enough money to pay the bills 
How can I ever forgive them? I think about what they did to me all the time. All we need to understand is that he's God. Nothing's impossible with God. The rest is just details. The rest is just details. And time and again in his word, the message from God is, here's all you need to know. I'm God. I'm with you. Rejoice. I'm with you. I'm for you. If I say it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Because I'm God and I never make a promise I don't keep. Ever. God says that's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. What does God expect from us? He expects us to say, all right, here I am. I'm your servant. I'm your maidservant. Let it be to me exactly as you said, according to your word. Let it be done in my life. So we find Mary, and she's bursting with joy. She has all these thoughts going through. I'm sure all she wanted to do was talk to somebody. She knows she can't really share this with anyone, and then she thinks, oh, all right, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, she's got her own miracle pregnancy going on. Seems like a good match. She's my relative. So she goes off to visit Elizabeth. In verse 39, it says, Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leapt in her womb, John, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. I love this because Jesus just walks into the room inside Mary probably would have been first trimester. Jesus is not that big at that point. But he's in the building and John who's filled with the Holy Spirit immediately recognizes the presence of Jesus. And that's what happens. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit Jesus says My sheep know my voice, and they follow me. And you already see that demonstrated first while both him and John are in utero. John, filled with the Holy Spirit, recognizes Jesus, the shepherd. And immediately his own mom, Elizabeth, is filled with the Holy Spirit as well. And I believe this happens because God is also being gracious to Mary. And God says, listen, I know What Mary needs is someone to share in her joy right now. She desperately needs someone to speak faith into her life right now. So the only way that anyone can understand what's going on here is that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and immediately she is able to recognize Jesus in Mary. Immediately, because she's filled with the Holy Spirit. 42, it says, then she spoke out, this is Elizabeth speaking to Mary, with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women, there's that phrase again, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And there's so much here. You just see this. What's the immediate thing that Elizabeth does? She speaks faith to Mary. She confirms what Gabriel had said to her. She confirms the word of the Lord and says, you're blessed because what God said he was going to do in your life, he will 
do in your life. That's how we speak faith to each other. It's knowing what the Word of God says enough so that when, when anybody in our life who's walking with the Lord says something contrary to what God says about their lives, we're able to say, listen, you're wrong. You're wrong. That's not what God says about you. That's not what God says about your life. That's not what God says about your future. That's not true. This is what the word of the Lord says. It's how we speak faith to each other. And through his word, God has come to every single one of us. And he said to us, blessed is he who believes. Blessed is she who believes. For there will be a fulfillment of those things told to him. There'll be a fulfillment of those things told to her. You're blessed if you believe because you're going to see the promises of God come true in your own life. You're going to see them happen. If we believe God's word, if we believe his promises, then we're blessed. It's that simple because we'll see those promises fulfilled. Guaranteed. God has chosen to work this way, and this is on your outlines, your last fill-in. Our faith releases the promises of God in our lives. And our doubt binds them up. Our doubt binds them up. And there's so much room in the church for, for stuff to get weird with this because Christians get weird with the faith thing sometimes. But even in biblical faith, Jesus later on in his ministry would visit a town where people had no faith. And the word would say that he, he basically, it would say, could not do any miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now he's God. He can do whatever he wants. But he's chosen to create a system in which there's a direct relationship between our faith and what God is able to do in our lives. So how do you get faith? It's Amos 3.3. 3. Can two walk together unless they are in agreement? Can they walk together if they're not in agreement? I hope that we're all like Mary, full of faith, ready to submit to the will of God and everything that comes along with it. Resting in the truth that nothing is impossible for God. The rest is just details. So should our meditation be on all the reasons why it can't be done, all the details, or should our meditation be on nothing's impossible for God? Nothing's impossible for God. And this is what we want to ask as, as we move into a time of prayer in a moment. Just to examine our own lives and ask the question, man, when, when I think about myself, my own life, what I believe about myself, what I believe about my future, what I believe about what God says about my life. Are they the same thing? Or is my thought life in disagreement with God? Is what I believe my future is in disagreement with God? You don't have to understand how it's going to work. You've just got to be willing to say, God, I don't, I don't know how you can do it, but I know you're God. I know you can do it. I think what we wrestle with the most is not can God do it. I think we wrestle with does God want to do it? Does he want to do it? And he does. That's the promise in scripture. He does. Let's just bow our heads and, and close our eyes for a minute. Do you believe that God's promises are for your life? Do you believe they're for your life? Or are they just out there for, for somebody else that God has chosen? Are you giving voice to doubt instead of speaking faith? Are you full of joy over the truth that the Lord is with you? He's with you. 
If you could get that today, every other doubt would disappear. And so if you need God to speak that to you, would you just say, God, help me to understand that truth, that you're with me. You're with me. And then finally, am, am I viewing myself as God's servant? Am I viewing myself as God's servant? Here's the thing about being a servant. It's when the master says, go do this. You don't really get to respond, well, I don't, I don't know if I'm good enough to do that. You just do it because the master told you to do it. So what we see in Mary is we see someone who's taking the role of a servant and said, said God, what, all the reasons I can think of why this is impossible are irrelevant. You've given me a command. You've, you've given me a calling. So I'm going to obey. I'm going to believe. I'm going to trust. Do you view yourself as a servant of God? 